Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Why We Need a Gentle, Radical Revolution by Danny Kruger Democracy divides us. The political system best calculated to hold together a diverse society is also one that exacerbates differences and obscures our common opinions and interests. A two-party system, and all Western politics is largely binary, split between conservative and progressive parties, or groups of parties, encourages vicious disagreement across the aisle and polarises opinion in the country. The paradox is that despite our party disagreements, the most popular opinion with the public is that they're as bad as each other. The view held in common across the country is that they're all the same, that there's nothing to choose between them. And deep down, the public is right, but in a good way. Fundamentally, the parties share a worldview which derives from our common inheritance as the heirs of the Christian tradition. That tradition taught us that individuals are intrinsically, personally valuable without reference to their identities of sex, household, tribe or race, which, in pagan cultures, gave people their only worth, or, for most people, their lack of it. It also taught us that despite our individual personal value, our mission in life was other-facing. Our object of worship was outside the self. God's will was made material and meaningful through the institutions of our common life in what we came to call civil society. These institutions, in turn, especially the institution of the law, work to protect the individual and make diversity safe. This tradition split into two parts in the modern age, as an old anti-Christian idea, which Christianity had expunged, crept back in. In my book, Covenant, I call it the idea, as opposed to what I call the order. The idea is that I am God, with a creative power to order reality and decide for myself what is right and wrong. This ancient heresy has been refreshed in our times precisely by the principle of individual rights and freedoms that Christianity gave us. This is because we have steadily degraded the other side of the Christian bequest – the other-facing institutional life that gave individuals a more textured sense of who they were, i.e. members of a community, with something to live for outside of themselves. The consequence is both the narcissism of self-worship and the rise of identity culture, a return to the pagan belief that your value is determined by your sex, race or tribe. Individual value and dignity, made safe and meaningful by a social arrangement which emphasises solidarity, peace and care for the stranger, these are the elements of what I call the order. They are not absolute principles. 
Even individual rights to life and liberty must be constrained in certain circumstances, and other-facing generosity likewise needs to be limited in order to be sustained. To take a current example, care for the stranger does not, in my view, mean offering a home in the UK to anyone who manages to arrive on our shores and claim asylum. It does mean treating every asylum seeker humanely, whether we admit them or remove them, and it means committing part of our wealth and our power to preventing or mitigating the effects of war and natural disaster in other parts of the world. How much does a covenantal politics approach other policy areas? The principles that Graham Tomlin set out in the report he compiled after the Grenfell Tower fire, after listening to local voices, are a helpful guide. We need to humanise welfare, dismantling the inefficient bureaucracies which see people as units to be managed, rather than as people to be helped and given responsibility and agency, and build instead relational systems of social support. We need to provide homes, which means so much more than the sterile term housing. It means attractive, affordable, safe buildings where people can live both with privacy and in community. As this suggests, we need to help people become neighbours, with the means and the motivation to connect with others who belong to different identity groups. We should notice faith, as happened after Grenfell, It is local community faith groups which, more than any official agency, provide support, belonging, cohesion and practical change at a local level. And lastly, overall, we need to renew democracy. In Graham's words, we need to find ways to enable people, especially in more deprived areas, to have more of a say in issues that directly affect their lives rather than politics happening at a distance by competing parties remote from local life. The sense of this is both deeply conservative, small c, and deeply radical. Of course, we need power to be close to the people. This was the traditional way of things before Durkheim and his followers decided that the centralised state, not local civil institution, was the proper place for managing human services. In the Middle Ages, according to Robert Toombs's History of England, fully a third of men of all classes played a responsible role of some kind in the management of their neighbourhood. Yet a return to this model would be radical because it involves upending Durkheim's assumptions, shared by his heirs in the School of New Public Management, beloved of Blairites, about the proper arrangement of society. We need a gentle revolution, a return to some old ideas about social organisation that prioritise human relationships, the organic and the natural over utility, efficiency and equality of outcome. Ideas which actually lead to a more useful, more efficient and genuinely more equal system. These are the ideas of what I call the order, derived from theories of the social covenant that lie deep in our history, but which are also best fitted to the modern world. In the age of tech, we can create 
a decentralised, responsive and personalised system that will give us both belonging and agency. We can recreate a more localised economy, but this time more fair, equal and capable of supporting a larger and more diverse population than in the pre-modern worldview. And we can make a democracy that more closely reflects the principle that we all, whether progressive or conservative, share a common inheritance and belong to a single political community. After the Fall, The Post Office Scandal and the Search for Justice by Graham Tomlin. It was November and I was in Rome for a meeting in the Vatican, as you do. With the new year on the horizon, news agents were displaying calendars for 2024. One in particular seemed to show up in just about every street vendor available, the Hot Priest calendar. It had pictures for every month of young, bronzed, good-looking priests, resplendent in brand-new, ironed, blacked clerical shirts, smouldering into the camera. I've no idea whether they were real priests or just models in clerical garb. I didn't buy one, but it did get me thinking of why they had produced it. Was this a recruitment drive for clergy in the Roman Catholic Church? Something for the nuns to put on the wall of the convent? It was hardly aiming to attract women by saying, if you become a Catholic, you could bag one of these hunky chaps, as priests are, well, supposed to be out of reach. I suspect it was just trying to tell the world that the church is cool, after all. That the church is for good-looking, shiny people, not just the regular ones with wrinkles and expanding waistlines. I was thinking of this recently while watching the story of the post office scandal unfold. This dreadful story is, to be frank, a bit of an embarrassment for the Church of England. This horrendous miscarriage of justice has at its heart not just a Christian, but a priest. I met Paula Vennels once. While I was Bishop of Kensington, we planned a big conference for all the vicars in the Diocese of London. At the time, Venel's star was rising in ecclesiastical circles. People had just noticed that the head of the post office not only went to church, but was also ordained. And so she was getting invited to speak at all kinds of conferences. She agreed to come, and to be fair, was gracious, unassuming, polite. There was nothing to suggest she was soon to become the object of public opprobrium that she is now she would definitely not go on a church calendar these days, but then who would? The last decade has seen a succession of scandals and falls from grace. Harvey Epstein, Hugh Edwards, Russell Brand, Philip Schofield and Christian leaders are not exempt. Jean Vanier, Ravi Zacharias, Mike Pilavachi, the list goes on. And now Paula Venels. We Christians hang our heads as it seems such a deep failure. How can someone profess to be a Christian, even a vicar, and yet do such things? The embarrassment and shame are real and proper. And yet there is, in my view, something at the heart of it which seems to be mistaken. Helmut Thielke was a German theologian who opposed the Nazis during the Second World War and somehow survived. 
His was a crucial voice in the German church and nation as it struggled to get to its feet again after the trauma and destruction of those years. The big question Germany faced at the time was how a modern, sophisticated Christian nation had been so easily seduced by evil. They also struggled with the question of shame. What were German Christians to do with the guilt that hung over them after the Nazi years? Thielecker was a brilliant preacher and drew huge crowds to his church in Hamburg. In one of his sermons, he took as his text St Paul's line that Christians are a letter from Christ, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, on tablets of human hearts. He asked his congregation the question, what kind of letter are you? Is a Christian meant to be an advert for God? Is the Christian a shiny product of divine handiwork so that God, like some marketing agent, says, look at her, isn't she a fine person? Wouldn't you like to be like her? When she was being fated by all, we might have said that about Paula Venels, but not anymore. And that's the problem of celebrity Christians, or celebrities of any kind for that matter. They are used as adverts for the brand they profess, religious or otherwise. Use this shampoo, follow this diet, believe this religion, like this celebrity does, and you could be like them. Celebrities are celebrated because we believe they are different from us, ordinary mortals. But sooner or later, it turns out they have the same temptations, their bodies sag, their flaws tend to get exposed in the extra scrutiny they face in a gossipy age like ours. The hunky priests in the calendar may look good, but I suspect their lives are as shadowy and compromised as the rest of us. Every now and again, you find a life that is remarkable. But even then, there are dark corners Mother Teresa famously said that she rarely experienced the presence of God and struggled with lifelong depression. If we are meant to be adverts for God, we're not very good ones. Tilaka's point was that Christians are not meant to be adverts for God, but letters from him. And the letter, written on the human heart, says something like this. Here is a poor, weak human being with their own strengths and frailties, moments of courage and moments of great weakness, struggling to live a good life but failing much of the time. And yet, despite that failure, God still forgives, accepts, loves and stands by them. It sounds scandalous, I know. Hearing about the post office scandal... All we want is for the perpetrators to be found guilty and punished. And rightly so. Justice must be done. Paula Venels and her staff seems to have stuck stubbornly to the laughable view that the post office had been infiltrated by hundreds of criminal sub-postmasters intended on defrauding the public purse. They lacked the sense or courage to question their own IT system, despite being warned it was faulty. Yet divine and human justice work in different ways. Not least because God, unlike human judges, sees the dodgy things we all do, not just those whose sins get found out because they're in the public eye. 
Human justice systems must take their course. Crimes must be punished and attempts made to turn around the lives of those caught in patterns of criminality. Yet underneath human justice lies divine justice, which promises an ultimate judgment, even for those who escape human justice. Yet, at the same time, it offers not just justice, but mercy. The gift of a more profound and ultimate forgiveness, which, if if accepted, does not override the penalties of human justice, but enables the possibility of redemption in the longer term. Martin Luther often used a Latin phrase to describe Christians, that they are simul justus et peccator, at the same time righteous and sinful. Like an alcoholic who is never encouraged to say that they were an alcoholic, but they are a recovering one, an honest Christian doesn't say, I was a chronic warrior, greedy, someone who struggles with lust, but I am such things. And yet faith in Jesus makes a difference in helping me not to be. St Paul once said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Not I was the worst, but I am. I remember Frank Bruno once saying, I'm not much of a Christian. I've been a sinner all my life. He hadn't quite understood. Christians are only ever recovering sinners. Paula Venels and the others responsible for the post office scandal will have to face justice one day. It may for some even mean prison. But... As many in our prisons up and down the country know, lots of people find God in prison. Not as a literal get-out-of-jail-free card, the justice system doesn't play Monopoly, but a realisation that however bad your crimes, however murky our misdemeanours or sly our sins, forgiveness is possible. And forgiveness is not an excuse. It doesn't say it didn't happen, but it says... It did happen, and it was bad. But a new start is always possible. And the love and forgiveness of God is available, even for the worst of people. For good-looking priests who struggle with temptation, for celebrities who fall from grace, or even ordinary people like us. The Expectations of an Oath Lessons from Hippocrates by M. Chifchi A casual acceptance of infanticide seems to have been not the expectation but the rule among both Greeks and Romans in the centuries immediately preceding the birth of Christ. That shocking fact about the pagan world attitudes towards children mentioned in David Albert Jones's The Soul of the Embryo has been brought to our attention again recently by Tom Holland's Dominion. Since his book was published, much has been written, even in Seen and Unseen, about the radical alteration of our attitudes towards the weak and vulnerable, especially children, women and slaves, by the Christian faith's love for the weak over the strong. The depictions of Christ's suffering humanity in crucifixes over centuries slowly work to change the attitudes of even the strong and the powerful. 
But to think that the Greco-Roman world was entirely callous towards the vulnerable is not true. There is a minority of voices revealing that, even then, there were some opposed to the killing of children in the womb or after birth. There were some who anticipated the revolution of values that the Judeo-Christian tradition was about to inaugurate. Within that minority of pagan authors, the writings attributed to Hippocrates, who was roughly contemporary of Socrates, and to his school in particular, stand out. Translations of his writings from Greek into Syriac, Arabic and Latin ensured their influence for centuries over Muslim and Christian physicians. The most well-known one, of course, is the Hippocratic Oath, which explicitly forbids causing an abortion using a pessary. Its description of the moral rules and humane ideals that physicians swear to obey is partly responsible for the honour and prestige that is still, even today, attached to the medical profession. Medical schools around the world, including 70% of them in the UK, still use some version of the oath in their graduation ceremonies, so that the new medics can make their promise to obey a short summary of the ethical ideal that should guide their practice. The revival of interest in the oath more recently dates from the post-war period, when the appalling example of medical experimentation in the Nazi regime led the then newly founded World Medical Association to draft the Declaration of Geneva in 1948, since revised multiple times, which have in turn inspired many other versions of the oath to be written. Some of them are banal and frankly silly, such as one version by the poet David Hart, I will not knowingly do harm to those in my care, I will smile at them and encourage them to attend to their dreams and so hear the voices of their inner strangers. Doctors today, in their day-to-day work, rely more often on complex documents detailing their professional obligations. So, what can we and they learn from the oath? The oath includes general promises to use treatments for the benefit of patients and to protect them from harm and injustice. But more specifically, it also promises to not give a deadly drug to anyone if asked, nor to suggest giving one to a patient, including a pessary, to cause an abortion, as I've already mentioned. Later, the oath states, Into whichever houses I enter, I will go for the benefit of patients, keeping myself free of any intentional injustice or corruption, particularly in sexual matters involving both female and male bodies, both of the free and of slaves. Already, this tells us there was an awareness that patients are vulnerable when in the care of another. The physician must not take advantage of their vulnerability, either sexually or by euthanizing them, or by enabling those in despair to commit suicide. A renewed commitment to these rules should be urged, since some doctors continue to abuse their power over patients in these ways, sometimes even with legal permission in countries that permit assisted suicide. That the oath was written by a pagan points to the possibility of us all finding our way, without appeal to any holy book or revelation, to an agreement about some basic moral rules that should guide doctors. However, Christianity puts his own spin on the Hippocratic Oath, as we can see from a Christian version of it dating from the early Middle Ages. 
gone are the references to swearing by Apollo and Asclepius, whose serpent-entwined rod remains a symbol of medicine today. But, more importantly, the Christian oath forbids causing an abortion by any means, making the promise more definite and explicit. This provides further evidence for the argument mentioned at the beginning of Christianity's preoccupation with defending the most vulnerable from harm. Whereas the original oath envisages belonging to a closely knit circle of physicians led by a teacher from which outsiders are to be excluded, those sections are completely missing from the Christian version. According to W.H.S. Jones, this could be because creating an inner circle of practitioners shows an aristocratic exclusiveness, which is in sharp contrast with the universal brotherhood of Christianity. The relief of pain and suffering should be tied by no fetters and hindered by no trade union rules. Christian benevolence should be universal. For that reason, Jones thought that the Christian oath might have been originally written during the earliest centuries of Christianity, when Jesus' healing missions and the apostles' practice of holding all possessions in common had not yet been forgotten or neglected. In Westminster Abbey last year, we saw at the coronation that the heart of our political system is an exchange of vows between monarch and his people, vows sworn in the belief that to remain faithful to what was promised are gifts given by something above us and beyond our ability to control. Similarly, the weighty responsibilities of marriage have inspired societies across generations to begin married life by pledging solemn promises. Why should we expect anything less from those who take us into their care when we are struck by disease or facing death? Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from seen and unseen aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.